please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As I characteristically do when I begin a new series, or a new book at least, um, I am going to begin with what I call a book sermon, uh, giving you a broad overview of the entire book. Now, as also is customary, I did create an outline of First and Second Timothy, which is on the back shelf there, and if you'd like to get one after the service, uh, Lord willing, as I've mentioned before, by the end of my tenure as a pastor, I will have had the privilege of outlining and preaching every book of the Bible, and um, so that outline is back there. I've done that since the beginning and would encourage you if you collect those. Uh, at some point, I need to get them online so that if you have failed to collect some, you can, you can get those as well. That'll happen perhaps at some point. Uh, we are going to have that broad overview of the entire book of 1 Timothy today. I'm not going to do both 1 and 2 Timothy in, in, in uh, today. We'll do 1 Timothy, then we'll preach the, the, the series in 1 Timothy, and then I'll do a 2 Timothy book sermon and preach the series in 2 Timothy And we do this in order that we don't lose the forest for the trees, in order that as we go through uh, the the book, as we go through the epistle, uh, we'll have the opportunity to have had kind of that broad overview of where Paul is going and what Paul intends for us to learn from it. Now, generally speaking, and 1 Timothy is no exception, there is a broad theme to Paul's epistles. He'll hit on any number of topics, but for sure. And he'll do that in 1 Timothy as he does in every book of the Bible, uh, or every one of his epistles, and in every book of the Bible uh, there are any number of, of, of lessons to be learned. And yet, we understand that these are epistles. They are letters. They are written. And so they are generally themed on something. Paul has, has specific things that he wants the churches or individuals to know or to learn, and so we take the time to find out what those are so that we don't miss them, so that we're looking for them as we go through the epistle. 1 Timothy is the first of the three epistles that we call the pastoral epistles. You have perhaps noticed over your years of studying the Bible that the books of the New Testament and of the Old Testament are not compiled chronologically. If you were going to start a chronological reading of your Bible, you would probably start somewhere around, as far as when it was written, Job. Now, if you were going to start, of course, historically, you'd start in Genesis 1-1 because the heavens and the earth are made. But as far as which one was written first, you would generally understand to be starting with somewhere around Job. However, uh, uh, and it's the same with the New Testament, they're not written in, in chronological order per se. They are written in, or they're, they're compiled in a thematic order. They are grouped by themes rather than by chronology. And as it relates to the New Testament, uh, the groupings which uh, we would generally regard would be these. First, you would see a grouping of historical books. And those would begin with the Gospels, which is the history of Jesus. This is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as uh, understood through the Gospels. The first three of the Gospels are generally called the Synoptic Gospels. And that's because they deal with effectively the exact same events. Uh, they There will be a different order to events. Matthew is actually written entirely thematically as well, and so it's compiled compiled in a thematic order rather than necessarily in a chronological order. If you want the chronological gospel, you go to Luke, uh, which Luke claims to have written in a generally chronological order. And so we have the different reasons for the gospels to have been compiled, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are giving you the same events from various perspectives. And so we call those the synoptic gospels. And then you have John. And John uh, covers uh, events that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. And there's actually very little overlap in the events between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke can really be studied together. John needs to be studied separately. And uh, John's purpose, of course, is that, that uh, the reader might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name, as John says there at the end of his gospel. So we have the, the, the gospels, and the gospels are, as it were, the history of Christ, the history of Jesus, his life, and his teachings. And then we have the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is, if we can say it this way, the history of the, the early church. Um, early church would probably be better than just church there, the history of the early church, or the beginnings of 
the church. And so the book of Acts uh, takes us from the ascension of Christ into heaven to effectively the end of, of um, the early church, the end of Paul's life, and these sorts uh, of events uh, toward the end of the apostles. And that would be the history of the early church. So those are the histories. Uh, following the histories, then, we get the epistles. And the epistles are broken up into generally what we'd call the Pauline epistles, and then into the um, the general epistles. So uh, the Pauline epistles, they first begin with the epistles to the churches, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. And then we have a subset which we often call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We'll talk a little bit more about them in a moment as to uh, well where they fit into the broad scheme of things. But Paul, we regard these three epistles as having been written. We actually regard Philemon as a part of that as well. We would not call it a prison epistle, uh, but it was probably sent at the same time and to the same people as Colossians. Um, but those are the three prison epistles written by Paul when he is in, incarcerated in some way, shape, or form. And then first and second Thessalonians. So those are the, the epistles to the churches, and then we have the, the epistles to persons, and that would be First and Second Timothy, and to Titus, uh, the, oh, excuse me, those would be the pastoral epistles. Those are written to the ministers of Timothy and Titus. They weren't necessarily pastors, as we would think of a pastor today. They, they uh, would be more envoys, and we'll talk about this more, to, uh, of Paul to churches, um, but they are called the pastoral epistles, and then, of course, that particular letter written to Philemon um, as well. And then after the Pauline epistles, we get into the general epistles. The first two general epistles were written to Hebrew Christians. Now, there's some overlap. There, there's debate in the Christian world as to whether or not Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I do believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, so we might bump that into the Pauline epistle section or we might bump it down to the general epistle section. Um, Paul does not take credit. No one takes credit for the book of Hebrews. It would only be um, the, the, the similarities and church tradition that would, would tell us that Paul wrote it. So we have the book of Hebrews and James, both of which were written to Hebrew Christians. And then we have Peter's epistles, First and Second Peter. John's epistles, this is the same John. This is not John the Baptist. This is John the Evangelist, the same one that wrote the Gospel of John. And he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then we have Jude's epistle as well. And then finally, we have uh, a visions, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which... Um, we do see letters in them, right? We see the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning, and then after that is a vision. Some people will put this in the epistles. Some people would bump this out to a third entire category, which would be uh, um, uh, prophecy or, or just visions, whatever the case may be, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we find then is that First and Second Timothy are letters that are written to a specific person, and namely that person is... Timothy, the first two of the pastoral epistles, in that they are written to a man who is a minister of the gospel, not written to the church at large, although it will become apparent as we walk through it that Paul does intend the epistle to be read to the churches, but it's written to a specific person, and that person being Timothy. We expect then to find in them teachings and truths as it relates to to the nature of ministry and to the nature of the church and church function. Paul teaches of this nature, qualifications, expectations of ministers of the gospel. It's safe to say that we can't really call this a minister's handbook. I think that, that uh, it, it certainly would not be thorough enough or, or hit on enough even uh, topics as it relates to teaching to call it the minister's handbook or anything of the sort. But there is most certainly a great deal about ministry in these two books. He also teaches about the nature of the church, the nature of church assembly, the nature of church worship. We're going to see that particularly in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as Paul talks about them coming together. Now, once again, it's not the manual on this. We see 1 Corinthians 11, what we just talked about is with the Lord's table. That spoke a great deal to how things should function in the local church. As a matter of fact, all of 1 Corinthians is really speaking about church function and fellowship as it relates to correction. And so we, 
We, we see elements of, of minister, of qualifications. We see elements of church and of structure in the book. We also will see any number of doctrinal thoughts as it relates to a word which will become the operative word in 1 Timothy. If you want to theme 1 Timothy, if you want to have a, a, a simple theme to 1 Timothy, it would be sound doctrine. 1 Timothy is a book where Paul emphasizes sound doctrine, sound teaching, the, the truths of the, the, the Word of God and how important they are in the church. To this end, the pastoral epistles are not just for pastors by any means. They are profitable for every believer. As we walk through them, we'll see this to be true. So as we mentioned already, the book of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, and they are among what we would consider to be the final books that he wrote. We know particularly from the way Paul wrote 2 Timothy that that was uh, the last book that he wrote. When we trace the general order of Paul's life, it looks something like this. 48 to 49 AD was Paul's first journey, often called his missionary journeys. And there we would understand him to have written to the Galatian believers as he continued along his way. 50 AD was the Jerusalem uh, Council. And uh, spelled wrong, my apologies. I, uh, I put uh, council, it should be C-I-L, not S-E-L. Um, but the Jerusalem Council is there, which we can read about in the book of Acts. Uh, ver- uh, A.D. 51 to 53 was Paul's second journey, and there we believe he wrote to first and se- uh, the, the, the epistles of First and Second Thessalonians to the believers in Thessalonica uh, during that period. And then it, 53 to 54, he was in Antioch for a period of time. 54 to 57 was his third journey. We believe on that third journey he wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. He was arrested in Jerusalem after that third journey as he journeyed back to Jerusalem to give the money that was collected to the people there. He was warned that he would be arrested as he passed through Ephesus. He was indeed arrested and held in Jerusalem for uh, several years from 57 to 59 AD. And then about a year of journeying to Rome after he had appealed to Caesar. It took a while uh, for them to journey. He was shipwrecked. There were a lot of things that happened. We believe that he was under house arrest from perhaps 60 to 62 AD. Now, this is where disagreements begin. Some people believe that he was under house arrest for the final effectively seven to eight years of his life from 60 to 67 AD. Um, But it would appear that there was a time where he may have been released. Uh, During those imprisonment, the the imprisonment in 60 to 62, this is where we would generally believe he wrote the prison epistles. There's some, again, disagreement about this. Some people would put 1 Timothy uh, up when... uh, uh, at an earlier time of imprisonment, not necessarily at that house arrest time in Rome. Uh, And then some people believe that he stayed under house arrest during that period from 63 to uh, 66 um, A.D., again, I I would would be more inclined to believe that it was then that he, he was released. He went and he visited several churches. He left Timothy in Ephesus. He left Titus on Crete. And at that time, he left them with a letter um, that would help them uh, along as, as they were commissioned to go. And then uh, he was again imprisoned where he wrote Second Timothy, as we know that he was imprisoned at that time. And that's a general possible Uh, order of events as it relates to him writing his epistles and as it relates to the general order of his life. So then 1 Timothy, we would believe from this at least, and uh, I would believe that it was written later in Paul's life. And that's Paul. That's the author of the book. Now let's talk about the recipient of the book, Timothy. Our introduction to Timothy actually begins in Acts 16 during the beginning of Paul's second journey. In his first journey, he went throughout Galatia. He went particularly to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe. He preached there. He was stoned. He was cast out of the city there. Uh, They responded very negatively to his ministry. And we read this in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra. This is in his second journey. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But his father was a Greek. 
which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his uh, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So Paul and Barnabas, um, uh, excuse me, Paul and Silas visited Derby uh, during the first first journey. Paul and Barnabas visited Derby, Lystra, Iconium. Upon Paul's return with Silas during their second journey to that region. Paul heard the reputation of a young man named Timothy or Timotheus, and he likely lived in Lystra. We would believe from the way Paul speaks of him throughout the various epistles that it's possible that Tim- Timothy was actually saved under Paul's ministry the first time around. And then during those three or four years that Paul was absent, he began to grow and to learn, and it became very obvious that uh, he was a man of ministerial quality. He was the son of a faithful and believing Jewish mother, and we'll find in 2 Timothy he was also the grandson of a faithful and believing Jewish grandmother. And his father, we find here, was Greek. Now, the Jews traced their lineage of Jewishness through the mother's line, not through the father's line, and so he would have been considered Jewish. And to this end, Paul sought the opportunity to circumcise Timotheus and thus to have him be able to minister both to the Greeks, because everyone around there knew his father was a Greek, and to the Jews as he had circumcised himself and thus, uh, in, in a manner of speaking, associated himself strongly with his Jewish heritage through his mother. Paul then determines that he desired to take Timothy with him and thus has him circumcised. He would become the closest and most faithful companion to Paul throughout the remainder of his life. And we will see from the very fond way Paul refers to him that they were indeed very close, almost a father-son relationship. Timothy would not just be a companion, however, He would also take on the role of an apostle's representative. He would be sent to churches or left with churches and then report back to Paul in order that Paul's teachings, Paul's commandments would be worked out in churches, even if Paul himself was not able to get to them. So we find various times where Paul would do this. He did this in Corinth. We read in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy was sent by Paul to Corinth to bring them into remembrance of his teachings. We see it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. So he sends Timothy to, to Philippi. Timothy sees how they're doing. He reports back and he comforts Paul by reporting back on the state of the church there in Philippi. We see in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. So again, uh, this is after Paul had been Paul and Timothy had been in Thessalonica and they had moved on, but they sent Tim, Timothy back having heard about the hard time that, that the Thessalonians were, were going through. He sent Timothy back in order that he might establish them in the faith and that he would encourage them in the teachings and doctrines that Paul had laid out, particularly as it related unto suffering. So we see then, He was Paul's right-hand man. He was Paul's trusted representative and close companion. So that's Paul. That's Timothy. Now let's talk about the content of the book of 1 Timothy. If we were to sum it up, as I mentioned already, if we were to sum up 1 Timothy, we would sum it up by saying that there's a strong emphasis upon sound doctrine. And we see this emphasis, we'll particularly see it as we dig in next week, but we see it from the very beginning. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogy 
genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So no other doctrine, Paul says, only sound doctrine. It's easy as a minister and indeed as believers to get caught up in the fantastic. It's easy to get caught up in the intellectual, that which is intellectually stimulating, uh, that which is extraordinary. But the Christian life is not always necessarily extraordinary. The Christian life is, is oftentimes understood as a marathon, not necessarily as a sprint. I don't know if you've ever watched the Summer Olympics. We have it coming up again here in 2020. But one of the, uh, uh, one of the, the, the iconic events of the Summer Olympics is the 100-meter dash. Uh, if you are good at the 100-meter dash, it's one of the most watched sports throughout all of the games up there with gymnastics and swimming is the 100-meter dash. It's one of the most watched of events. And an athlete who becomes a superstar at running 100 meters in less than 10 seconds uh, does indeed become a superstar. I mean, he's known the world around. He's put on Wheaties boxes. It's, it's a big deal. But the marathon... That 26.2-mile run where the best runners complete in, in less than two hours. Uh, you don't hear much about the marathon in the Olympics. If you want to find it, you can find it, and you can find the event. But you're not, you're, you're, you're not going to become a superstar by winning the marathon at the Olympics. You will by run, running the sprint. The sprint is it's quick. It's, it's, it's fantastic. These guys are fast. But so are those marathon runners. They're, they're not going to get their, the, the, the same uh, due. It's not extraordinary. It's not as stimulating. And the same can be said of the Christian life. Same can be said of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is not a sprint. Sound doctrine is a marathon. It isn't about being flashy. It isn't about keeping up with the latest trends. It isn't about... Uh, uh, adapting to cultures and to times, sound doctrine is about being stable. It's about being consistent. It's about being steady. It's, it's about the things that don't change, not the things that do. There's a lot of change in this life, but sound doctrine is that which does not and has not for the 2,000 years of the church. This isn't the stuff that makes for exciting times, but it is the stuff that makes for Success, And Paul begins by highlighting sound doctrine in his teaching. And so he would continue in verses 8 and 9. He says, But we know that the law is good if man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And he continues. We won't continue reading. Paul first warns against legality against the misuse of the law to be a means of establishing righteousness rather than a means of establishing unrighteousness. He reminds Timothy that the law does not exist for the righteous man. That God did not make the law for the righteous man. God made the law to be a template, not for God's people, but to show the sinner his sin. It exists for the lawless and disobedient. The law exists to show a man how far short he falls. And yet there were those in the church that were teaching the law as if it mattered more than it did, as if it was a source of grace, as if it was a source of salvation, as if it was a source of righteousness, as if it was a source of favor with God. And Paul says they're misusing the law. The law is good if it's used lawfully, but it's not made for a righteous man. It's made for the lawless and for the disobedient. Paul then appeals to his own, and of course we'll talk more about this. This is just our book sermon. Paul then appeals to his own example and his own experience on this point in verses 12 and 13. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul speaks to his own lawlessness here, which coming from a, fair, uh, a former Pharisee is, is a big deal for him to express that in that way, reminding Timothy of his own testimony of shame, which was overcome by the grace of God. The chapter then ends with a renewal of Paul's charge to Timothy, one that is very gravely given in light of the ministers who had failed. 
He says this in verses 18 through 20. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we have these two men that are introduced here, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had fallen short. They had lost in the warfare. Their faith had been made shipwreck because they strayed from sound doctrine, because they got caught up in things that were not sound doctrine, because they went with something that was intellectually stimulating, something that was flashy, something that, 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 that drew them away from sound doctrine. And so their faith was shipwrecked. We see such things all too often throughout the scope of church history. We see those who one might believe are approved, but as their ministry continues, they end up failing in the warfare. And each time what we find is that at some point they stopped holding fast to found doc sound doctrine, if indeed doctrine was the problem. And when this happens, God's people in general, and ministers in particular, become very easy targets for Satan when we stray from sound doctrine because sound doctrine, biblical truth, is the anchor that grounds the believer. And when we let go of our anchor, we inevitably begin to drift with the winds and with the currents. And unfortunately, until Christ comes again, the church is anchored in a spot as the winds and the currents around them are the world. If we let go of that anchor, then the world will take us away. Culture will take us away. Society will take us away. Philosophy will take us away. Ideology will take us away. And we will drift outside of sound doctrine on the winds and the waves of the world. And as Satan is the god of this world, when we're driven by the winds of this world and sail upon the currents of this world, it does not end in godliness. This transitions us to chapter 2, where we see Paul actually begin to teach some of this sound doctrine. He's warned against other doctrines. Now it's time to teach sound doctrine. And as we might expect, sound doctrine begins, corporately in particular, with prayer. So he says in verses 1 and 2, I exhort therefore that first of all, paramount, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This, of course, is the reason why every Sunday morning you'll hear me pray for our leaders. Because first of all, in the corporate setting, which is what we see presented in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, first of all, pray. If our assembly does not include prayer, we, we, we need to rethink some things because first of all, pray for kings, for those in authority, all men. Prayer is the lifeblood of the believer. Prayer is the lifeblood of the church. If we want to live lives that are quiet and peaceable, it won't be on the protest line. It won't be at the ballot box. It won't be in the trenches of physical, earthly warfare. Now, all of those things happen. But if we want to spiritually live lives of quiet, peaceable lives in godliness and honesty, it's going to be on our knees, in our prayer closets. It's going to be spiritual warfare that wins that battle. So then the first and foremost exhortation of the apostle as he calls Timothy to teach sound doctrine is that Timothy teach and exhort the believers when they come together to pray. To pray that our leaders would receive the gospel. To pray and to, to, to intercede for men. To pray that the testimony of God's people that we might lead godly, honest lives. Paul then highlights a second characteristic of the testimony of God's people, not just prayer, Specifically, this time, women and their role to play in the assembly, beginning in verse 9. He says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, 
with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair, with gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Another element of corporate worship and testimony within the church is directly related to how women relate themselves to the assembly. Now, we will obviously dig more into this text when we get there, right? We're not there yet. But sound doctrine compels women to adorn themselves in modesty. Modest apparel, meaning it's not drawing attention to themselves. Shamefacedness, the utmost of humility, sobriety, self-control, and soundness of mind. This is sound doctrine. You let go of that anchor, ladies. You're letting go of sound doctrine. You're not just letting go of standards. You're letting go of sound doctrine. Of which many, having left, have been made shipwreck. Women are called upon to be in subjection in the assembly, not to teach, not in any manner to assume upon herself an authoritative position over male worshipers. Now, we've just recently come out of a family series, and in that series we saw the same exhortation as it relates to the home, that wives are to be in subjection to their own husbands. And we stressed that this is not a statement of inferiority or dishonor, but rather a statement of design, of doctrine. And please take note that that's what this book is about, sound doctrine. Now again, we'll get there. We'll explain these things. We'll explain what it means. We'll explain what it doesn't. We'll explain where we sit on that. We'll explain why we sit there. But we're not talking about women being inferior. We're not talking about women being incapable. We're talking about God's design and sound doctrine. We're talking about a faith issue. A faith issue. And take note, as we talk about sound doctrine, that warning from chapter 1, those who abandon sound doctrine will find themselves drifting towards shipwreck. We can't mess with God's design. We can't stray from sound doctrine without understanding that there are dramatic spiritual consequences every time. Paul then transitions in chapter 3 to another important part of sound doctrine as it relates to corporate worship. So we are talking about corporate worship. Uh, this, is, this is talking about the assembly, prayer in the assembly, modest apparel in the assembly, not usurping authority over the man in the assembly. And then in chapter 3, we see the qualifications of those who would hold office, who would be leaders in the church. Verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And then verse 12, let the deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. So we begin to see a general structure of the church take place, the appointment of spiritual leaders to organize the church into something that can move forward corporately. Where there is a group of people, there needs to be structure. And the Bible is not excessively clear as to all the ins and outs of the structure of the church. We see any number of structures in churches today, and it's not necessarily to say that that, that because there's different, only one is right and the others are wrong. We don't see enough teaching in the Bible to, to, to lay down a specific Structure, But we do find in the Bible only two offices. Pastor, bishop, elder, which is the same office, and deacon. That's all we see. That's all all, all we we know about. We also see the Bible talk about the evangelist, not as an office of the local church, but as someone who would be a teller of the good news going to places. uh, Perhaps we might even uh, consider that to be what what we call a missionary today. And we see that function for the church. But as far as in the church, this is what we see. We see the bishop, that word meaning overseer. When we compare scripture with scripture, we see it's the same office as the pastor and as the elder. We'll talk about that when we get there. And then the second office is the deacon, that word literally meaning the waiter of tables. We see, we'll see in the book of Acts that deacons were first appointed in the church in Jerusalem so that they would do the service-oriented tasks of the church and that the teachers of the church, the apostles of the church, could give their time to prayer 
and to the study and teaching of the Word of God. Within this chapter, we see qualifications laid down for each of these offices. Now, these qualifications, just like with when we talk about women in the church, that they're not to usurp authority over man. It's not about inferiority, and it's not about, it's not about incapability. It's only about design and doctrine. In the same way, these qualifications do not imply that men who fall short of them are incapable of doing the work. Doesn't mean that if you don't have these qualifications, you are a bad teacher or you would be a bad leader. That's not what it's about. There's any number of men who fall short of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 that would make astounding leaders and tremendous teachers. But there's something bigger going on here. There's sound doctrine that's at stake. There's design at stake. Which means we align with these principles not because if these principles are in place, this is going to make the... These are the only things that make for good leaders. These are the only things that make for good teachers. That's not true. But these are what God wants to see in the structural leaders of the church. This is what he asks of God's people. This is what he asks of the church. This is what we align with. Because that's sound doctrine. See, the job of the minister is not primarily a physical job. It's a spiritual job. And if that's the case, those who are unqualified, regardless of their capacities, would fall short of the spiritual work that God would have for them. The pastorate is not a job rooted in capability. It's a job rooted in faith and sound doctrine. Now, in chapter 4, Paul begins considering threats to sound doctrine in a more particular way. Verses 1 through 3, he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created, to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So Paul warns in the latter times, and generally, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, these last days, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that these are the last days. We see in, in um, uh, 1 John, that, that in 1 John 2, he says these are the last times. And so we would recognize the apostles saw that they were in the last days, and yet Paul speaks here in a in a forward-looking idea, saying that, that there will be some that depart from the faith and, the, um, and give heed to seducing spirits. Those who are generally in, a, in association with the church but who do not follow sound doctrine. This is what in 1 John 2 we studied this morning. There are many antichrists. They, they came out of, uh, from us, but they were not of us, right? This is the same warning that Paul is giving here in 1 Timothy 4, uh, that they gave, give, give heed instead to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And he goes on to characterize um, these seducing spirits and devilish doctrines as hypocrisies and lies, as those who would forbid marriage, as those who would forbid the eating of meat, uh, those who would effectively, and the idea between that, marriage and meat, would effectively be denying grace-filled and sanctified living. Denying the design that God has given us. We'll talk more about that when we get there because we're seeing this really expressed heavily in our own age today, the um, forbidding of marriage and the forbidding of eating of meat. So Paul would say to Timothy in verse 6, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the word of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So a good minister of Jesus Christ toward the brethren is the minister that keeps sound doctrine before the eyes and ears of his people. A good minister nourishes the people in faith and in doctrine. A good minister does these things having first attained unto sound doctrine himself, which is why the qualifications are important. Now this takes Paul more personally toward Timothy as we continue through chapter 4, and he gives him several commands as it relates to ministry. In verse 8, Godliness is profitable unto all things. He exhorts Timothy unto godliness. Verse 12, he exhorts Timothy to allow no man to despise his, Timothy's, youth. As for a minister, he would have been relatively young, uh, probably somewhere in his 30s at the time. 
In verse 14, he exhorts Timothy that he would not neglect the gift which was given to him by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the elders. We see here ordination. We also understand within this the second time in the book that Paul has spoken of Timothy receiving prophecy. We'll talk about that more when we get there. In verse 15, he calls upon Timothy to meditate upon these things and to give himself wholly to these things. And then finally, verse 16 He calls upon Timothy to take heed, to watch himself, to guard himself unto sound doctrine, to continue in sound doctrine, and to make sure that he's hanging on to that anchor with all his might. Because if the ministers begin to let go, the people will surely follow. Having established these two offices, Paul continues in chapter 5 with a focus upon the relationships within the church. Verses 1 through 3, he says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. So um, Paul calls upon, uh, Timothy is called upon by Paul not to rebuke the church's elders, but rather to entreat them as fathers, the young men as brothers, elder women as mothers, the younger women as sisters, specifically adding as it relates to the younger women as sisters, the importance of treating young women with honor, with respect and purity. Paul then speaks toward a particular case in the church namely widows. And a good deal of chapter 5 is speaking about the church's responsibility toward widows, the family's responsibility toward widows, and the conversation of various scenarios in which the church would care for widows and various scenarios where the family ought to care for widows. Uh, And so there's only a subset of widows that ought to actually be cared for entirely by the church. And that would be under the subset that their family cannot or will not. And so it goes through all of those particular expectations, and this is sound doctrine. These things are elements of sound doctrine. These are things that we hold to. This is a part of our anchor. Following this, Paul then gives instruction about the church's responsibility toward ministers. We see the same word elder here, and yet we would, we would recognize in verse 17 that the elder, these are elders that rule, ruling elders, right? So as opposed to just old men, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 1, that is con- contrasted with young men and old women and young women. Here we see the elders that rule. Ruling elders, leaders in the church. Let the elders that rule, verse 17 says, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and in doctrine. So we see here insight that not every elder that ruled labored in word and in doctrine. But the ones that did are particularly worthy of that double honor. Paul calls for great care to be taken whenever an accusation would arise against a minister, as the text continues, that those who sin must be publicly rebuked, but that you do not take an accusation against an elder that rules in the church lightly or flippantly. Paul calls for Timothy to have no partiality in his leadership or decision making. He's not the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He's there as as an apostolic representative, Timothy is. So he's there making decisions, but he's not necessarily interfering with the elders that rule. He's called to care for the body. He's called to discern and lead the church carefully. And this is sound doctrine, which naturally continues in chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Paul then speaks to servants, calling upon them to honor their own masters. And notice the reason. The reason is not because you have good masters or don't have good masters. The reason is because sound doctrine is at stake. Don't let go of that anchor, servants. Those of you that are under the yoke, don't let go of that anchor because this is sound doctrine. And if you let go of that anchor, you will be blown by the winds of the world. Submission to authority is sound doctrine. Submission to authority is God's design. And when we see it, when we know it, when we align with it, that's where blessing is found. For the minister, this means that they, even above the rest of the church, hold this world loosely. And so as Paul closes his letter, he turns his exhortation back to ministers. First, that they would hold the the goods of this world loosely. Verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Godliness with contentment. Not that the things in this world are intrinsically evil, 
but particularly as it relates to the ministers of God. We are to be an example of contentment. Thus we hold the world very loosely and we flee the love of money. We also are called to be pure in the sight of all men, verses 11 and 12. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So he's called not to follow after the things of the world, but after righteousness and godliness and faith, love, patience, greater heights, greater heights of the virtues of Christ, to fight the fight of faith, to keep his eyes tirelessly on the eternal. And so the epistle ends. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings in opposition of science falsely so-called which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. The ending is a call for the minister of God to remain faithful, to keep that grip on the anchor of sound doctrine. And that is the star of the show here. It's not any one church or any ministry. The star of the show cannot be the man who is ministering. The star of the show the thing that ought to be elevated in in the church, in the Christian life, above all else, is sound doctrine. A good minister has very little to do with the man and very much to do with the sound doctrine that he lives and that he teaches. So we draw from this, that theme, the direction unto which every element of the teaching is intended to point. This epistle is focused, it's driven It seeks to communicate. And as we walk through it week by week, what Paul is communicating is this. Sound doctrine matters. Don't let it go. Identify it. Seek it. Hold on to it. It matters. We need to love it. We need to have it. We need to live it. We need to guard it. This is the point of our meeting every week. We come for any number of things. There's good fellowship here. There's support here. There's love here. There's safety here. There's understanding here. There's accountability here. All of these things are an important part of the church. We are the body. We function in the body. We've seen that over this past year uh, in particular. We've seen it in any number of ways. We've seen it in Dee and Andrea's family coming over and our part that we got to play in that. We've seen it with Sam and Corey and our part that we got to play in that. We've seen it uh, as we've been able to rally around Bev and the loss of her husband and Arlene and the loss of her husband. And we've seen how we as a body can come together for support and, and to serve and, and to be that But all of that is only as good, is only as good as the degree to which it elevates and heightens sound doctrine as we learn to live it and as we learn to teach it. So as we finish today, I want to go back to a passage that I didn't cover in our just brief overview in 1 Timothy that includes our memory verse for the month. He wrote, Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We here today, as we assemble and we worship and we teach and we learn, we are the pillar and the ground of truth. We are the thing that will carry truth from this generation to the next. We have been charged by the God of the universe with the task of being the guardians of the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the, in the, in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached on to Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We carry this legacy of Jesus Christ 
of the truth from generation to generation. We behave ourselves in the house of God. We deport ourselves in a certain way. We, we hold our ministers to account. We hold ourselves to account. We do all of this because we are the living testimony of Jesus Christ in this world. We are the pillar and the ground of truth. You, Christian, you are a living testimony of Jesus Christ in this world. You are a part of the pillar in the ground that holds up truth in this world. If sound doctrine stops here, if it goes away from the church, it goes away. We are God's appointed people to hold it, to keep it, to guard it, to fight for it. So the question is, how are we doing? At our job. And that's what I want to leave you with during this book sermon. As we think broadly, broad perspective this morning, the pillar and the ground of truth, sound doctrine, what is your mindset toward it? Not, not any one particular element of sound doctrine, not any one particular element of what we talked about today, but what about your attitude about sound doctrine? What about your attitude as it relates to truth? Is truth preeminent in your heart? Where God leads, will you follow? If you know it to be sound doctrine, will you grab a hold of it and not let it go no matter what culture might say, no matter what philosophy might say, no matter what ideology might say, no matter how much it might rub you the wrong way, will you go with it if it's sound doctrine? Are you willing to be a part of the pillar and the ground of truth? Or aren't you? Is sound doctrine more or less just suggestion? Is this something that works when it works and when it doesn't, oh well? If that's your mindset, then you're going to, you're going to be lacking something, not just as it relates to 1 Timothy, but as it relates to our studies in the Word of God every week. Because at the end of the day, what this comes down to is, if God points, I go. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to hang on to it. That's what God needs of us as his church. How is our testimony? Is your life, is your walk, is your family, is, an, is it an example of sound doctrine? Or are some things out of balance? Is the loyalty to sound doctrine out of balance? It's one thing if, if you just don't quite know what it says or if you don't see that you're, you're walking outside of it. But when you're made aware, when you're no longer ignorant, when now you know what sound doctrine is, does that mean you, you follow by default? Or won't you? How is Legacy Baptist Church doing at being a part of that pillar and ground of truth, at carrying the mystery of godliness into that next generation? These are the things that we, we tussle with this week before we start digging into the nitty-gritty of what Paul would have to teach to Timothy as it relates to all of these points of sound doctrine. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.